if you have a Bible, um, we're, we're going to end up in Isaiah 59, um, which if you're using one of the Pew Bibles is found on page 619. We're going to be in Ephesians really quick and James really quick before we get there. So however you want to do that, but we're going to be in Isaiah 59 eventually. Uh, this Advent season, we have been doing a series called The Gift Exchange. And really the idea behind that series is we've been looking at issues or things that can and probably have marked and shaped our lives. And we've kind of looked at those in contrast to what does God offer us in exchange for those things. So if you're our guest here this morning or maybe just for the sake of review, I just want to kind of quickly cover the last sort of three weeks, this being the fourth Sunday of Advent. Kind of here's what we've been talking about. We talked about the fact that you and I can be shaped, our lives can be impacted very much by fear and despair. The first week of Advent, we talked about fear and despair and how in contrast to that or in exchange for that, God literally wants to give us His hope. Two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that guilt can be a part of life, but in God's incredible goodness, He wants to give us His peace in exchange for our guilt. And then last week, we talked about the fact that God wants to take our shame and give us His joy. And today, which this is a funny calendar year, we kind of think, well, today's Christmas Eve. Well, technically on church calendar, it's not Christmas Eve until this service is done because you have to have the fourth Sunday of Advent before you get to Christmas Eve. So this isn't Christmas Eve yet. That's at 4 o'clock this afternoon. So I expect to see you all here at 4 o'clock this afternoon for that Sunday because that's kind of how it works. But today what we want to talk about this morning to get us ready for Christmas Eve is we want to talk about anger. Now, I'm sure all of you are just so excited that you want to talk about anger on Christmas Eve day, right? Like, wow, I'm just so thrilled. Why are we talking about anger? Anger doesn't exactly seem to be the most Christmassy kind of thing. I mean, most people are hoping when they sit down with their family and have Christmas dinner tomorrow night, there is no anger at the table, right? I'm going to guess. That's what we want. But why are we talking about anger? Well, I'm going to throw two people under the bus and blame it on two other staff members. That's what I'm going to do because this is why we're talking about anger. Here's why. One was a few months ago, back at the end of August, Mike said to me, he said, Lloyd, there's just a whole lot of anger in our culture. And we were kind of working on this series, trying to put together the Advent season. We were kind of wrapping it up and he threw that at me. I'm like, anger, oh, okay. Because we'd already looked at some other stuff. I'm like, anger, maybe that's an issue. So in part, it's Mike's fault. And in case you don't want to just blame Mike, then a few weeks ago, Brad said to me, he said, you know, there's a couple postings on Facebook about Christmas music and about how people are getting angry about Christmas music. So what I did after the conversation with Mike and after the conversation with Brad, I sat down and, and I did a Google search. Because I wanted to see, like, were these guys, like, going to do something so that I look silly on Christmas Day more, or Christmas Eve morning, or was there really some substance to this? So I did a Google search, and so I started, I think I put anger and Christmas music on Google, and all of a sudden articles are popping up. And what I found out was that if you work in retail, how many of you work in retail? You probably aren't here this morning if you work in retail. You're probably at work today, so that was really stupid. But if you know somebody who works in retail... People who work in retail, are, because Christmas music is being played 
evidently in some cases earlier and earlier and earlier in the stores, that that Christmas music being played is literally making people angry. That the people that work in retail are getting angry. Now, this, I'm not making this up. This was on Google, so it's got to be true. Okay? But literally, psychologists in Britain and in the United States are seeing this phenomenon. In fact, one of the articles, and I think the headline kind of overreached because it said, basically, Christmas music could put your mental health at risk. I think that might be a little bit of an overreach, but here's the thing. People are getting frustrated. Christmas music, we're getting angry about Christmas music. Now, in my house, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because I have someone in my house that would listen to Christmas music 365 days of the year to make them happy, not make them sad. But there's this anger with Christmas music. Okay, Brad's, Brad's got something here. What about Mike's idea that we're really an angry place? You know, is America really angry? And so I sat down and I typed anger in and I got AM. And before I could finish it, my screen is filled with articles about anger in the United States culture. Seems back on June the 1st, 2016, so a year and a half ago, Time Magazine ran an article, and let me make sure I give you the title right, America's Anger is Out of Control. That was what they were saying. And the article, in the first paragraph of the article, described how people find themselves getting incredibly angry in traffic, incredibly angry with the person in front of them at line at Starbucks, which just makes me very grateful. I don't like coffee because I can avoid that anger. Some of you, could I suggest, you could avoid that anger. Go to Scooters or Caribou, I guess. And they also said in that first paragraph that people were incredibly angry about politics. Now, as the article went on, it wasn't just kind of broad in general. They started to say within groups, so, you know, different groups within the United States, there's kind of a a, a special kind of outrage that people are experiencing. So, as I read the article, I found out that there are vegans who are outraged. Now, it was a year and a half ago. I hope that problem has been solved. But also, dancers are outraged. I'm like, wow, I... I thought people that danced were happy people, but they're outraged. Gardeners, not the family that's right over there, okay, not you guys, but people that garden, gardeners are outraged. I, I don't know why, but there's an outrage with gardeners, and, and fishermen are outraged. I'm not sure why. They lie all the time, so I'm not sure what they're upset about, but they're outraged. Maybe everybody's figured out what they're saying about their fishing stories isn't true, and so they're mad. And then one that got a little closer to home because my mom is a knitter. Did you know that there's knitter outrage right now? And I'm thinking, you know, you do not want somebody with two pointy sticks upset. That's just sort of self-preservation. And that was all in the Time article. And then I moved on to another article from a newspaper in Arizona. And, and, and it said that, you know, what the root cause of terrorism is anger. Okay. And then they said, hey, there were some surveys done. And the article I was reading was an article written in in November of this year, but they were referring back to some surveys done last summer, so the summer of 16, a year ago, so 18 months ago. And they said a couple of things that 
kind of startled me and kind of scared me, okay? 50%, so at least 50%, roughly half. So the folks on this side of the room, you are all angrier today than you've ever been. Avoid them would be my suggestion. The problem is, though, it's not just that, but 70%, so now we've got to go to, like, we've got to, we've got to take this section, and, and some of you are now officially in this section. Seven in ten Americans say every day they get angry about something they see in the news. Every day. So maybe there was something to what Mike was trying to tell me back in August. We are angry, or at least all around us, there's a lot of anger. So what are we supposed to do with that? Well, before we get there, one thing you could do, there's people that are entrepreneurial, and I'm always fascinated what entrepreneurs come up with, but around the nation, there are people that are creating rage rooms or anger rooms, and you can give them money so that you can go in and express your anger, and you get to take a baseball bat to a TV. People are making money off this because we're so angry, we'll give money to do something about it. I don't think that's what you and I should do about it. But what should we do about it? How, how should we respond to this? I mean, if we're angry and there's anger around us, what should we make of it? Well, real quickly, I want to share with you two sort of observations about anger to help us maybe process through this, okay? Now, we need to say a whole lot more about anger. We'll need to come back and do that at some point, but observation number would would be this. We should, you're going to hear me say this, we should be angry. We really should. Now, by that, I do not mean we should only be angry, and by that, I do not mean we should always be angry. I'm not saying that. But there are moments in life where we should feel anger, that there is a sense in which anger is a gift in a sense that God gives us for some good reason. Now, let me explain that. What I mean by that is there are going to be certain things that you and I recognize aren't right. There's a problem. We identify this isn't the way it should be. And our response to that shouldn't be, yeah, whatever. No, when we come against something that's definitely not right, that should cause a response in us and psychologists and those people that study emotions would say that should be anger. We should feel something. And the idea is that anger is kind of there to kind of tell us there's a problem. It's kind of a little built-in indicator that, hey, something needs to change, and we all need that. We need to realize this isn't right, so it kind of goes off inside and says, watch this. Pay attention to this. Anger has a part to play in our lives. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, I think is one of the verses in the Bible that kind of tells us that when it says these words. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, as I said, there's a whole lot more we're going to need to say about anger. We're probably going to need to come back and talk about anger in the future. But I do want you to notice that the verse is literally saying we do need at times to be angry. I struggle with anger a whole lot. And I read a comment by a British, a late British Bible scholar and pastor and Christian leader, a guy named John Stott. And he said this related to that verse. He said, the verse recognizes 
that there is such a thing as Christian anger. And too few Christians either feel or express it. Indeed, when we fail to do so, we deny God, damage ourselves, and encourage the spread of evil. Okay, so we need to feel this. There is a point in which anger does need to be a part of our lives. Not always and not only, but there is a need for anger. That's the first observation. The second observation is going to sound a little bit contrary to it. Okay, observation number two would be this. But we need more than anger. It's not enough for us just to be angry. We need something more. Okay, in very quick terms, anger makes us aware there's a problem. It kind of makes us aware something needs to change. But our anger, your anger, my anger isn't going to produce the needed change. Okay, you just getting angry about something doesn't solve a problem. It just says there is a problem. James chapter 1, verse 20, another Bible verse that kind of says a lot about anger, says this. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now that, that phrase, the, the righteousness of God, is, is most likely telling us. It's kind of a phrase that would be describing this would be behavior that's pleasing to God. James is saying, here's how it works. The, that anger that you and I feel, that we should feel, it tells us there's something wrong, but that anger isn't going to lead us to all of a sudden start living in a way that's pleasing to God. We need to understand this. Anger is a good thing, but it's never meant to be alone. If you are only angry, that's never going to accomplish what God wants in your life. If there's a sense His anger is there to do something, but something needs to be added to it. Well, what is it? What is the more? Something needs to be added. There's something more. There's something greater than your anger and my anger. Part of the message of the angel, part of the message of the fourth candle of Advent is a declaration of God saying, I've got something more for you than your anger. Something that needs to be exchanged for your anger. Well, what is the more? What is this thing that God wants to add? Well, given that today is the fourth Sunday in Advent, that's sort of a hint. What we need in exchange for our anger is God's love. It's not enough for you and I just to be angry. We need something more. We need something in exchange for that. We need God's love. Now, to kind of give you a word picture of what that looks like, I did say we are going to get to Isaiah 59, and I promise we will. But I do first, I want to tell you a story that I hope kind of illustrates how powerful an exchange of anger for God's love can be. And the story I want to tell you is found in a book called get the title right, Miracle on the River Kwai. Some of you may be familiar with a better-known book, The Bridge on the River Kwai. This is a different book, same idea, same story, but it kind of zooms in on something. The story is set in World War II. The British army that was sort of in Southeast Asia was 
taken over, was defeated. 80,000 troops under British authority were taken by about 30,000 Japanese. Sort of the background of the story. And these troops that were captured in this particular group that the story focuses in on were a group of Scottish soldiers. They were found themselves placed in camps where, and I'm not trying to be gross, but they'd get a little bit of rice every day. And for added protein, they usually got worms in the rice. Wasn't exactly a great place to be. And they would spend their days not, this wasn't Hogan's Heroes, okay? If you're old like I am and you know what Hogan's Heroes is, if it isn't, Google it and you can watch reruns of it. But they were literally every day they would go and they would work sometimes to the realm of about 18 hours a day on what's known as the Burma Railway, also known as the Death Railway. Day after day, basically no eating, nothing worth value. And the, the conditions of the camp and the work were described that the behavior that they were living in, the behavior they were expressing was barbarous. They were like barbarians. They were not treating, they were not treated well by their captors, but they even weren't treating one another well. If there was ever a time to be angry and to say, this is wrong, it was one of those times. But everybody being angry, that did nothing to change the situation. One day while they were out working, with some regularity, the tools would be counted. All of a sudden it appeared that a shovel was missing. That made one of the Japanese captors go off the deep end, so to speak. He was enraged. He said all kinds of things, probably things I couldn't repeat because I don't speak Japanese. I could get a sense he wasn't really happy. None of the prisoners in their sort of squadron formation moved. They were just kind of like, he's mad. The Japanese captor pulled out his gun and began to say in words they did understand that he was going to kill every single one of them if that shovel didn't show up. Given how they had been treated, there wasn't a man there that didn't think the guy was bluffing. He would kill them all. Suddenly, from the squadron that was standing back, one guy stepped forward. No one knew what to do at that point. Everyone kind of froze. The Japanese soldier put his gun away and everybody's like, oh, it's, it's okay now. The Japanese soldier picked up one of the shovels that was there and he used the shovel to beat the man to death. The squadron picked up the bloody corpse carried it, and they came to the next checkpoint where the tools were recounted again. Every shovel was there. Someone had simply miscounted. There was nothing missing. Very, very quickly upon return to the camp, the story spread. One innocent guy gave his life for the group. Everyone heard the story. And all of a sudden, the prisoners changed. 
instead of treating each other terribly, they began to treat each other the way you'd want a family to treat one another. And it wasn't just a little short change. They continued this for the next two years till the war ended and in conditions in the camp from their captors never improved. When the Allied army, which largely would have been American troops, showed up to liberate them, to kind of remove them, you would think the anger that was seething would come out and now we're going to let the Japanese have it. But what happened was these prisoners who were still basically almost dying and virtually the vast majority of them did die from the conditions in the camp. These very skinny, distraught people literally put themselves physically between the troops that had come to rescue them and their captors. And they said these words. No more hatred, no more killing. Now what is needed is forgiveness. Anger was present and with good reason, but nothing in the camp was changing. It wasn't getting better. It's just people were getting angrier and angrier. But love, the giving of oneself for others, changed the camp and marked lives. You say, how can something like that happen? How how can we in a world that does seem very, very angry do anything that makes any difference? How can anger be exchanged for love and that make any difference? Well, this is where I want you to focus in with me on Isaiah 59. And it's a longer chapter, but we're really just going to focus in on three verses. This is sort of my Christmas Eve morning gift to you. We're not going to be here for the next three hours. I'm going to let you go home and have lunch and come back. But I want you to look at verse 14 and verse 15 with me of Isaiah 59. And I guess it would help if I had my Bible open there. It's on page 619 of using the Pew Bible, but it says this. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and his uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. Okay. Going into Isaiah 59 puts us in the context of a time and space where life in the, among the people of Israel was anything but good. In verses 14 and the verse part of verse 15 are kind of giving a summary overview of saying this is how bad it is. This is how bad the conditions are. So the idea of the first sort of two lines of, of verse 14 of justice being turned back and, and righteousness standing off in the distance is Probably a picture of moral absolutes disappearing. Things that should have been there. Justice and and uprightness or righteousness, they should be a part of life, but they're collapsing. They're they're going away. And giving that those moral absolutes are an expression of God's character. That's a really scary thing. That is a huge problem. 
But if moral absolutes start to go away, it probably shouldn't surprise us that the second part of verse 14, in some ways, the second half of the verse is, is probably describing, you could say, a collapse of public morality. I mean, truth stumbles in the public square and uprightness can't even enter in. That's just talking in, a broad, in, our, in our broader culture. Truth can't come. Uprightness isn't even welcome. It's like something's collapsing. It's not good. If there was a reason to be angry, we're certainly getting there. This isn't how God intended life to be. And as we move into the first part of verse 15, it's kind of going from the broad scale of the whole culture to how do you and I operate in that culture personally? Well, he's, Isaiah describes it as truths lacking just in our individual lives. And then he basically says, if someone doesn't want to play the game of life the evil way, you're basically turning yourself into a zebra at a lion convention. This isn't good. This isn't right. It is all disintegrating all around them. This isn't the way life should be. By the end of verse 15, we kind of get a glimpse of how is God looking at this? How does God think about this? And what God saw was not good. Those words, the Lord saw and it displeased him. The words displeased him literally mean it was evil in his eyes. Isaiah is telling us God is angry. God is aware that something needs to change. This isn't the way things should be. First part of verse 16 kind of Add some tension to that, kind of add some pressure when it says these words as the verse begins. He saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no one to intercede. You'd think as bad as the situation was that somebody would want to kind of provide a solution, somebody would want to step up, so to speak. The word by intercede, Isaiah, the word picture created there is sort of someone willing to stand between the people and the moral, the caps, the collapse and decay, that someone would kind of come in between. But no one would. There was nobody there. A problem existed, but no one was going to bring a solution. It was about as bleak as it could get. That's the picture he's wanting to paint. But thankfully, that's not the end of the verse, and that's not the end of the story. All of verse 16 reads, He saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. Into a bleak situation that desperately needed change. Isaiah tells us God stepped in to solve the problem. God was willing to come and deal with it. God was willing to give of himself. He was going to express love. He wasn't going to just stay with anger. He was going to do so much more. Really, folks, this is a part of the message the angel sought to bring when the angel said to the shepherds that in this, the born to us this day in the city of David, is a Savior, Christ the Lord. That this little tiny baby who was born, was coming, was literally baby Jesus, was God sending His Son into an angry world to bring the love of God in exchange. And that angry world 
didn't quite get the baby, but the baby still came to go to the cross to deal with all those things that separate us from God, all those things that create anger and add pressure. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but part of the Advent journey is a reminder to us something needs to change. Anger does have a part in the Advent story, but it is far from being the whole story. What we desperately need in the Advent story isn't just anger. We needed God to intercede. We needed God to bring His love to really bring the change we desperately need. Folks, our anger must be exchanged for God's love. If you and I are just angry, that's never going to be enough. That's never going to accomplish what we need it to, what we long it for. John 3.16 may be one of the best known verses in the entire Bible. And in some ways, it's a summary. It's kind of a repetition, a reminder of Isaiah 59, verse 16. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus came into a world where things were not right. And when Jesus showed up, there was a whole lot of reasons why someone would be angry. A whole lot of things saying, this isn't right. But we need much more than anger. Into an angry world that was created by the sin of people, by your sin and my sin, out of love, God sent His Son. And His Son literally came to display the love of God, to express it, to say, here it is, and to offer to us the benefit. See, Jesus was willing to give of Himself for our benefit, to deal with our stuff so that we could be saved from our sins. The headline in the camp that day and on River Kwai, you know, basically the headline would be, innocent guy gave his life for them. The, the headline, the, the, if you're looking for characters to quickly say on social media, what's the story of Christmas? The one, the only one who's ever truly been innocent came for us to give us so much more than our anger, to give us His love so that our lives could literally be changed. And here's the thing. If you and I repent of our sin and trust the Lord Jesus as our Savior, this amazing love of God isn't just displayed to us, but God gives it to us. Another way to say that is, if you trust Christ, God will declare you, because of God's love for you, God declares you righteous. And not only does He declare you righteous, God commits Himself then to work in your life to transform you so that not only can God say you're declared righteous, but now you and I can begin to live righteous lives. See, His love comes into our lives so that we can now live the way He wants us to live. Which means into the world that you and I live that's probably way too filled with anger. 
God makes it possible for us to be instruments of his love and to offer to the world around us love instead of anger. We don't need any more anger, but we sure need a whole lot more love. And God is offering to us, hey, give me your anger. I'll give you my love. And it can change things. You know, throughout Advent, God has been offering us gifts. Through Advent, ultimately, He offers us the gift of His Son. And He offers us the gift of His Son so that our lives can be changed. So that we can go from despair to hope. So we can go from guilt to peace. So we can go from shame to joy. So we can go from anger to love. And God doesn't just offer those like, oh, here's some candles, look at them. Or here's a manger scene, look at that. No, He literally offers it to you and me right now. He wants us to have these gifts. He wants these things to fill our lives. As we already said, by trusting in the Lord Jesus as your Savior Savior and, and seeking to follow Him, you and I can begin to experience life with hope instead of despair. With peace instead of guilt. With joy instead of shame. And with love instead of just anger. I pray this Advent series, this time we spent doing this, getting ready ultimately for this afternoon when we focus very much on the Lord Jesus, that this Advent series has kind of allowed you to see God is inviting you to see change is needed. But God isn't just saying change is needed, God isn't just trying to get us to be angry. God has so much more for us that God offers us the gift we need so our lives can be changed. That God is offering us the gift of the Lord Jesus. May this Advent journey lead you and me to trust the Lord Jesus as our Savior and to follow Him so that we experience the fullness of the exchange that He's offering us that we literally can know lives of hope and peace and joy and love, all which come in the package of the Lord Jesus. That's what he wants for you and me. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful to you for this morning for this incredible thing of just being on the Advent journey, being able to remind ourselves of an old story, but to realize behind that old story are some amazing things you want for us. Lord, there's so many things that can fill our time and our day and our culture. And unfortunately, Lord, there's so many things that fill us that even at Christmas time, anger can be there. But I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to offer us so much more than that. That is an expression of God's love. You literally are offering us an exchange today. You want to take just our anger and you want to add your love 
So that instead of us staying stuck, instead of us knowing something's not right and not being able to do anything about it, thank you that you make it possible to be changed and transformed. You offer us this incredible gift in Jesus. And I pray today we would long to receive from you all that you have to offer. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. In the very precious name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.